With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Carrie Nyrouter? Lloyd Nyrouter met Michelle Laundy in 1989 when they were both in high school they started dating, and they would marry in 1991. The couple then went to college. They would eventually have three daughters. They moved to the town of Corning, New York, which is home to Corning Glass. I was just there a few years ago. I stopped there on the way to Niagara Falls. It's actually a pretty incredible plant with all the different glass items they manufacture. Lloyd worked for that company, for Corning Glass, as an engineer. Michelle would eventually take a job teaching at a local college. Lloyd was very active in caring for his daughters. He would take Carrie, the middle daughter, to ballet. People described him as charismatic and amazing. Even though he may have appeared to some as a perfect father, he was exceptionally strict with his daughters. He would dominate and control them, as well as physically strike them. As it turns out, he wasn't a great husband either. He would denigrate his wife Michelle, and in late 2007, she stopped communicating with her parents. She said it was at Lloyd's direction. So he was trying to cut her off from resources. In 2008, Lloyd moved to New Jersey to take a new job. He went alone. He left his family behind and filed for divorce. Lloyd started to pursue full custody of his daughters. He was quite adamant. He made 26 sets of post-divorce filings. He was trying to avoid paying child support and made a number of false claims against Michelle, trying to make her look like a poor mother. Michelle had her own complaints about Lloyd. She said that he was trying to turn their daughters against her. By this point, Carrie was in college. The couple's oldest daughter lived with Lloyd, and the youngest, 14 years old, lived with Michelle. So there was just one child left in terms of paying child support from Lloyd's perspective. Lloyd had filed a petition for sole custody of the 14-year-old daughter. He didn't want to pay any child support. On August 26, 2017, on the day of the hearing for that petition, Lloyd did not show up for court. The case was dismissed. He had never missed a court appearance prior to this. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On August 28, so two days after Lloyd failed to appear in court, a friend of Michelle's came by to pick up the 14-year-old daughter for swim practice. He called the police because he could see Michelle through the door. She was motionless in the stairway of her house. So the door had window panes in it, and he was looking through those windows. When the police arrived, they would find Michelle dead. No one else was in the house. There was a rope around Michelle's neck. The police initially believed that she had taken her own life, but they noticed that she had an injury on her chin. 
which looked like the rope had been thrown around her head from behind and pulled back. The police started looking for the 14-year-old daughter. They knew that she lived with her mother. They were relieved to get a call from Carrie, who told them that her younger sister was with her in Rochester, New York. This was about 100 miles from Corning. Carrie had told the police that she had traveled to Corning to spend one last night in her bedroom at the family home when her mother became angry at her for siding with her father. Carrie took her younger sister and returned to Rochester. When the police interviewed Carrie's younger sister, she remembered hearing her mother screaming. In addition, Carrie's cell phone records indicated that Carrie was at Michelle's residence for two hours, even though she represented her stay as something closer to 15 to 20 minutes. The medical examiner was unable to determine Michelle Nyrauter's cause of death. The police started to put together a timeline of all the players in the case to figure out what could have happened. They just weren't buying Carrie's story. They thought there was more to it. They discovered that even though Lloyd was in California for a job interview when Michelle's body was found, he had been in Rochester with Carrie the day before that. Carrie said that she helped him move into her apartment. Then he checked into a hotel where he spent the night. After that, he left for the interview in California. The police found it unusual that within 36 hours of Michelle's death, Lloyd was at the courthouse to discontinue his child support and alimony payments. He had been paying almost $6,000 a month to Michelle. It was here that the police caught up with him and asked him a few questions. They recorded him as he sat in a police cruiser. His story was the same as Carrie's. When the police looked at the video surveillance from the hotel, they saw that Lloyd did check in, but they noticed that he walked his daughter back out to her vehicle and then appeared to climb into it. He's picked up on surveillance in the hotel parking lot the next morning at 6.30 a.m. He was wearing the same clothes. Cell phone data from Lloyd's phone indicated the phone was in the hotel room all night, so he left his phone there, but he was not there. Lloyd tried to collect on a life insurance policy that was covering Michelle. It was worth $260,000. The police found that Lloyd was over $100,000 in debt. The police were suspicious of both Lloyd and Carrie, but at this point, there was not nearly enough evidence to arrest them. The police really didn't know what had happened. All the police really had at this point was a motive, which a lot of divorced people would have. And they had the fact that Lloyd and Carrie were lying about Lloyd being in the hotel. Perhaps the two had just gone out somewhere to spend some time together. Maybe they visited Michelle, but they didn't kill her. Maybe the visit upset her, and this is what made her want to bring an end to her life. There was no clear picture emerging. The police decided to get a wiretap for the phones of both Lloyd and Carrie. For a while, nothing happened. The conversations were ordinary. So the police decided to ask Carrie to meet with them, hoping this would get her to say something incriminating to her father. The tactic was partially successful. A conversation was recorded between Lloyd and Carrie, where the pair appeared to be concerned about the curiosity of the police. We also see that Lloyd asked Carrie to lie to the police. The pair really didn't say anything particularly incriminating, but it was enough to where the police wanted to continue the investigation. They thought something was really going on that involved a criminal act. It was around this time that another medical examiner ruled Michelle's death a homicide. So initially, the cause of death was undetermined, but now it was a homicide. The police interviewed both Lloyd and Carrie. Lloyd was in New Jersey, 
and Carrie was in New York. Lloyd didn't change his story. He even agreed to take a so-called lie detector test. Carrie was nowhere near as calm, under pressure. She ended up telling the police everything. She told them her father had approached her, complaining that he could not afford to pay Michelle any more money. He was going to have to bring an end to his life unless he killed Michelle. Carrie agreed to help her father. They entered into a conspiracy to commit murder. She and her father went to Michelle's house. She unplugged electronic security devices in the home in order to allow her father to enter undetected. Michelle was at the top of the stairs when she first saw Lloyd. He went upstairs and the pair argued. Lloyd murdered Michelle. Then he staged the scene to make it seem as though she had hanged herself. Carrie would later admit that she actually physically helped Lloyd to stage the crime scene. So Carrie actually had her hands on her mother's body. Lloyd made his way out of the back of the house and climbed into the back of Carrie's SUV. He did this in order to stay hidden from his 14-year-old daughter, who was there at the time of the murder. At this point, Carrie drove back to Rochester. Her younger sister was in the vehicle with her. And of course, Lloyd was hiding in the back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Carrie's younger sister was not aware Lloyd was ever at the house because she was sleeping for part of the time and for the rest of the time, Carrie kept her busy. Although, as I mentioned, the younger sister did hear her mother screaming. Carrie was charged with second-degree murder, second-degree conspiracy, tampering with physical evidence, and first-degree custodial interference. The police had enough to arrest Lloyd. They figured they would grab him when he showed up for that polygraph, but he missed the appointment. Instead, they would find him at a parking garage in downtown Princeton, New Jersey. He was threatening to experience a gravitationally-assisted demise. The parking garage was five stories, and he was standing on the edge. So he was threatening the police with this behavior. They were talking to him for about 90 minutes. At one point, he turned his back on an officer who quickly tackled him. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and a number of other charges, including first-degree burglary and second-degree conspiracy. The prosecutors made a deal with Carrie. She would testify against her father, and she could plead guilty to second-degree murder and spend 15 years to life in prison. 
After Lloyd's DNA was found on Michelle's pajamas, the one she was wearing when she was attacked, the prosecution offered Lloyd a plea deal. If he would plead guilty to first-degree murder, the other charges would be dropped. He could be sentenced to up to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So it was an awful plea deal from Lloyd's perspective. In an effort to prove his negotiating skills were as deficient as his parenting skills, he accepted the plea deal and was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without parole. Surprisingly, the prosecutors decided to allow Carrie, who had agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder, to plead guilty to second-degree manslaughter. So they had her on a charge that matched what she actually did, but they gave her a better deal. She was only sentenced to one to three years in prison. She was released in January of 2020. Now moving to my analysis. There are two main ways of thinking about this case. One way, justice was served. The person with the motive and who actually did the killing went to prison for life. Carrie was a victim who was manipulated. The other way of thinking about it is that the disparity in the sentences for the perpetrators was massive and not supported by the evidence. Carrie was an active and willing participant in a homicidal conspiracy, yet she served hardly any time in prison. She beat the system. She played the prosecutor. Let's look at the factors both for and against the idea that justice was served, starting with the factors that support that this outcome was fair. Lloyd was an abusive parent and husband. He had manipulated his daughters. He convinced Carrie that her mother was the enemy. At one point, he tried to convince Carrie that her mother tried to run her down with a vehicle. He also led Carrie to believe that her mother's insistence on not giving up custody was actually going to result in his death. Carrie was afraid of him, but also looked up to him. For example, she was in college studying engineering. Now moving to the factors that indicate justice was not served. Carrie's sentence was too light. Carrie repeatedly lied to investigators. This was over the course of some time, not just on one occasion. She disabled security devices in order for her father to get in undetected and kill her mother. She knew that her father was planning on committing homicide. It wasn't like this point was murky. He had actually described how he was going to shove a towel in Michelle's mouth and then strangle her from behind with a cord. It would appear that Carrie was okay with this imagery. This didn't make her go and call the police. This seemed like an acceptable plan from her point of view. In the recorded phone conversations with her father, her only interest seemed to be escaping responsibility. There was no remorse for the murder. There was no, oh, we shouldn't have done this. Instead, it was like, I wish this could be over. So a lack of empathy, a very cold and callous position. So which theory is correct? Here are my thoughts. I think that both theories have merit to some degree. Clearly, Lloyd had a massive advantage in terms of his power over Carrie. He abused his position as her father to manipulate her. She would not have murdered her mother without Lloyd. He was the driving force behind the homicide. At the same time, I don't see this as a case where the daughter serves just a couple of years in prison. She was 19. She knew right from wrong. It's worrisome how much effort she put into this crime. Driving from Rochester to Corning, assisting with the crime, driving back, lying to the police repeatedly. It wasn't like she was just asked to look the other way. She was an active participant. If Lloyd had told her about what he was going to do, and she didn't act, 
That would be terrible. But what she did was much worse than that. I think 20 years in prison would have been much more appropriate in this situation. Other than being unfair to the victim, my main concern with the outcome of this case is the precedent that it sets. Now a father or mother who is looking to convince one of their children to participate in a homicide, even an adult child, can say, look, there's this case in Corning, New York, where the father went to prison for life, but the daughter just served a couple of years in prison. If we get caught, I'm the only one who's really going to be in trouble. This simply gives the parent more ammunition for manipulation. I think this is a dangerous precedent. I'm surprised that the prosecutor was okay with this deal. He would say that he believed Carrie because she passed a polygraph. As I've talked about many times before, the so-called lie detector test is pseudoscience. Yet repeatedly, we see police officers and prosecutors believe in these devices. It's one thing to use it as a tactic, a way to basically allow the police to lie more effectively, something they really like to do in these types of cases. It's something completely different to actually believe in the results of the test. This is kind of like the difference between a parent on Christmas Eve who tells their child Santa Claus is coming, and then the parent themselves goes to bed after the child does, and a parent who tells their child Santa Claus is coming, and after the child goes to bed, the parent stays up and eagerly awaits the arrival of Santa Claus. There's a difference between using something as a tool and really believing in it. I think this speaks to how pervasive and destructive pseudoscience is. The prosecutor was also moved by Carrie's story, the idea that she was manipulated. I think compassion is needed in the criminal justice system, but in this case, I feel as though this was an overabundance of compassion. Perhaps this prosecutor secretly wanted to be a defense attorney, so this was his big chance to act like one. What I find curious about situations like this is that at any other time, a prosecutor in this position would be saying how terrible Carrie was, how she was equally responsible. But when she agrees to testify against her father in a case that was really not too strong, the prosecutors are put in a position to defend the criminal. Now, all of a sudden, Carrie's a victim. It really does seem like the decision to be lenient was based on her cooperation and how they thought they needed her, and not on the actual evidence in the case. The last item I want to talk about is the plea deal that Lloyd Nyrauter accepted. It's curious that somebody would take a plea deal that would likely leave them incarcerated for life. Did he not understand how plea agreements work? He could have mounted a robust defense. He could have said that Carrie was the actual killer, and he only helped clean up the scene. So basically, reverse the positions. He was just trying to cover for his daughter. I think what could have happened here is that Lloyd felt like he was in prison with the child support and alimony. He was paying almost $50,000 a year. He was angry about this. Perhaps to Lloyd, this was a life sentence. From his perspective, his freedom had already been taken away. It was one consequence or another. He didn't want to pay the money, so it had to be life in prison. Just like the choice he gave to his daughter between his life and his mother's, I think that Lloyd may have considered himself trapped between two choices, paying Michelle or paying with his life. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.